and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer. And I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. So today we're going to be talking about industry in the area, uh, but first we're going to continue the Child's Way saga. And Tabitha, did you do your homework? I did do my homework, which well I probably done. forgot that I did, but then I remembered again. Um, it's not ancient. Uh, Child's Way, is, the name is based on the 17th century, so it is late medieval. That's ancient, isn't it? No. Not to a geologist. Anything after the fall of the Roman Empire is modern. <laughs> <laughs> To a new town development specialist, it's ancient. (laughs) Sarah, you're going to start us off today, aren't you? I am, yes. I have to say I am slightly disappointed at the lack of response to our previous podcast. I was hoping that there would be an outpouring of support for me after your accusation of my lying all the time. Everyone just agrees. Clearly, (laughs) they do. Clearly the, the answer, Sarah. Or it was just so ridiculous that they didn't feel the need to comment. Hmm. Well, nobody knows you like I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have probably worked with you the longest I've worked with anybody. Really? Yes. Oh, I'm touched. <laughs> Tell us about industry. <laughs> yes. So I thought I would talk about probably more unexpected industry for Melton Keynes. Talk about Hayes the Boatyard. Boats. Oh, Boats. Yes, boats. boats were made in Milton Keynes. Ocean-going vessels were made in Stony Stratford. Ocean-going vessels. Yes, in the middle of the country. Yes, they were built one and a half miles from any navigable water, but <laughs> seventy-four miles from the sea. Wow, That's definitely not sad. ancient boats, though. No, no, they definitely weren't ancient, <laughs> but they did go on the ocean from Stony Stratford. That's amazing. That's what I thought. And it's probably not one that you would expect, so I thought that would be the one that I would talk about today. Cool. So it's Hayes Boatyard. So Edward Hayes was apprenticed in Manchester as a boat builder and agricultural engineer. And then he moved to Wolverton to work for the London and Birmingham Railway as an engineer in the new loco works in the 1840s. So the railway, as our listeners will know, opened in 1838, so not long after that very early in the days of Wolverton and Wolverton Works. He married and moved to Stony Stratford, where he founded Watling Works and was a consulting engineer. He had a forge and foundry and was in agricultural engineering works to start with. He made portable steam engines, which you only needed one man to operate them, whereas most people's steam engines you needed at least two, if not three men. And he made a windlass and other agricultural equipment, but a lot of farmers were quite reluctant at first to use his inventions. Um, But he became foremost in Britain for creating and trying out new forms of machinery to help farmers, and eventually they came along. William Smith, who I talked about last month, worked with him quite closely, and they had a big agricultural show together in 1861, Um, and lots of agriculturists and landowners came and they had refreshments and there were lots of lights that were 
made that were powered by the gas that they made on site and things so oh. it was quite an important thing it's like when you go to a conference center and all the um, tables of different kind of people showing all their stuff out yes kind of yeah yes it's good but he kept getting inquiries for from people about boat engines so they started um, specializing in marine engines from the 1860s and then from that they started building the boats as well they initially concentrated on steamers for coasting, canal and river work and they built launches and tugs for the Royal Navy, for government commissions, for not just our government but for governments across the world as well. So not only were they going into boats from Stony Stratford in the sea, they were going to South America, sailing down the Nile, um, the Japanese government commissioned boats for them. Oh wow. Um, in 1888, they made a steamer for the Met Fire Brigade, as well in London. And the business was continued by his son and grandson. Um, at its height, they had 80 employees. And they were also very big on having apprenticeships. So he was very keen to enable people from local families, um, poor and normal people, to have an education and to learn to become engineers. He didn't think it should just be for wealthy individuals and wealthy children. And some of their apprentices went on to great things. So Osborne Reynolds was a professor at the University of Manchester by the age of 26. He's oh, one of their apprentices. Yeah. They had railway directors and engineers, and one became a designer on the Titanic. Which we know <laughs> didn't end well, but I'm sure <laughs> their apprentice didn't work on the bit that went wrong. Lots of bits. Well, the, the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but as I said, they had a worldwide reputation. Their boats won international yacht races and tug tests. Engineering recorded a 51-foot haze tug towing three Thames barges, totaling over 400 tonnes fully loaded against the tide, which doesn't mean an awful lot to me, but it does sound impressive. It sounds impressive to me as well. Um, by the 1900s, they were making vessels up to 80 foot long, which is just over 24 metres. Wow. So if, like me, you can't picture what 80 foot is that's about two double deckers end to end Amazing. or the average length of a blue whale or a diplodocus nice. that last one really helps me yeah actually, well that's really. what i thought i'm trying to give a it's scale relatable to you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think the double decker bus for me yes that's probably the most but it's not as much fun i don't see many blue whales a, a dinosaur <laughs> so they would build the boats in Watling Works and then tow them to the canal where they would launch them sideways into the canal. They would then have to take off all of the superstructure because canal tunnels tend to be quite shallow. Mm -hmm. um, if it was a really big boat, so one of the 80 footers, they would then dismantle it and put it into sections and then tow that by barge down the canal to London where it would be put back together. It's quite a faff. It is quite a faff. You would think that they would relocate, but they clearly must have just loved Stony Stratford. Who doesn't? It's all the, it's all the pubs. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of their last orders came in in December of 1923 and was named Pap after his daughter. Oh. And that was used on the Thames. After the Second World War, she became the flagship for the Thames Water Conservancy Board and was renamed the Way, 
because all of their boats were named after rivers oh, and yeah. there is no mm -hmm. river called the Pat. Um, but when they no longer wanted her, she was donated to the museum. So the boat that we have in our car park, our current car park, is the boat that was originally the Pat and one of the last ones that they made. Oh, fantastic. That's yes. awesome. I love that. So when you drive in, you don't even need to like come into the museum. No, you don't have to pay your £12 admission. You can see a boat made in Stony Stratford right in the car park. Yeah, you just drive around and then come out again. Yep. But we do recommend you come in the museum. We do, yes. <laughs> Definitely. We have more about them in our Hall of Transport. Brilliant. So that's it. They, they closed shortly after the death of the grandson in the 1920s. So she was one of the last boats to be built. Oh, but yes, boats were made in Martin Keynes. That's such a cool fact. Given how landlocked it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so what I want to talk about today is um, how super, super important industry is to the success of a new town. Because if you think about it, what makes a successful place is people. the people that are going to move there. And <laughs> and what is going to bring the people along? Jobs. So Milton Keynes is in a really strategic location. If you don't know, it's halfway between London and Birmingham, uh, roughly north to south, halfway between Oxford and Cambridge, east to west. Uh, we are on the M1 motorway, so we've got two junctions on the M1 motorway. And we are on the West Coast Main Line Railway, that goes from London up to Birmingham and Manchester and further north as well. Plus we've got the A5, uh, which is a good transport link as well and we also have the canal which was not so important when they were developing in the 70s but obviously used to be a big industrial um, transport link in the 19th century so all of these transport links merge to make us a really excellent place for business and industry and the provision of industry in the new town was inspired by the six goals that the Milton Keynes Development Corporation came up with and if you have listened to other episodes you'll, you'll have heard me talk about these six goals before. They So the corporation were looking to provide a wide choice of sites for companies. They wanted easy movement to work for employees and a balance of jobs for all genders and skilled and unskilled workers. They also wanted well-designed buildings um, which would contribute to an attractive city. And when they were considering land usage and creating the strategic plan, the corporation spread out employment areas around the city, um, around the designated area, including those that were earmarked for industry and industrial usage. And the reason they did this was to disperse traffic and try and avoid hotspots. Um, of heavy traffic around like rush hour and stuff because if you think about it if you've got like very all of your employment areas concentrated in one or two places at certain times of the day all the traffic is going to be around those areas but if you spread it out then that spreads out the traffic that and I sense. and I think it's been quite successful um, definitely up until maybe the last 20 years or so when Milton Keynes has got a lot busier like you can get around Milton Keynes across the town in about 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 at rush hour. So I think that's worked quite well 
um, for the time period that they were planning for, which was up until the year 2000. They also made a distinction between light industry and heavy industry, aiming to put heavy industrial areas um, in the most appropriate places. So, for example, not too near residential areas and not too near beauty spots or linear parks. Um, so they wanted to put them somewhere where they wouldn't really <clears throat> spoil landscapes and things like that. So to attract businesses and industry to the area, they ran national and international campaigns. So they were encouraging businesses to move from across the UK, uh, across Europe, uh, from the US and Japan. And they had dedicated staff whose job was to liaise with businesses in these areas and promote Milton Keynes as a place to move to or to just set up offices or UK headquarters, things like that. They produced specific marketing for this too. Um, I don't know where I watched it. I think it might have been on YouTube, but it was like this Japanese advert. Um, obviously it ran in... <clears throat> It ran in Japan, it was all in Japanese, but I was watching it and it was like these two businessmen with briefcases rushing around trying to meet each other. Um, and that aired in Japan by the corporation trying to attract them to come to Milton Keynes. Um, they also had general marketing as well. And they used a lot of testimonials from companies that had already moved here. So for example, in the eighties, the campaigns were a lot of, um, heads of companies saying oh we moved to Milton Keynes because blah 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 and my favorite of this is one poster that's got three heads of like piano organ keyboard making companies and two of them are saying like I moved to Milton Keynes because I can't remember exactly why but because of it's good for my employees or it's good to transport links or whatever and then the third one says I moved to Milton Keynes to keep an eye on the other two, <laughs> which I love. And during my research, one thing that came up was the amount of car companies that moved to Milton Keynes. So things like car part distribution, um, plus there was a rise in popularity for manufacturing parts in the UK in the 1980s. And car component manufacture attracts a broad range of employees. So. Uh, managing directors, skilled workers, administration staff, unskilled workers. And so it provides um, that prospects across all socioeconomic backgrounds and kind of fulfills that goal um, of providing a wide range of opportunities and creating a balanced city. Well, Mountain Keynes has a long history of car manufacturing anyway, mm. going back to the 1830s with Salmons, who admittedly they weren't building cars, but they were making coaches and um, dog carts and rally carts and things like that. Again, selling them worldwide, oh, wow. because if you're making something in Mountain Keynes, you're making the best in the world. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so yeah, it goes back a long way. And of course, they that site has become Aston Martin. It has, yes. And they are hoping to open a, a museum there, aren't they? Yes. Awesome. Um, as along with Aston Martin, MK attracted several car companies for their UK headquarters. So Mercedes-Benz moved to Tongwell and they are still there. Um, Scania moved to Tongwell, they're also still there. 
Uh, General Motors moved to Tongwell, hotbed of UK. <laughs> Tongwell is Tongwell, the place to be. Yeah, it's got a lovely <laughs> lake. Um, Volkswagen Audi Group, they moved to Blakelands. They bucked the trend. Mm. Um, they are also still there. And they have their National Learning Centre at Wimbush. And forget Red Bull, there was a Grand Prix team in Milton Keynes in the 1970s. So Ooh. Arrows Grand Prix, uh, they were founded in Milton Keynes in 1977 and they were based at Water Eaton, which we all mostly refer to as the Lakes Estate. They moved out of Milton Keynes in 1996 and went into liquidation in 2002. I can neither confirm nor deny whether that's because they moved out of Milton Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems highly likely. I think the two are related. <laughs> they hold the record for competing in the most Grand Prix without a single victory, though. Um, they competed in 382 without winning, but their cars were considered competitive um, and they came second five times. So it's just that they didn't win anything. They were winners to us, though, because they're from Milton Keynes. <laughs> and coming second five times is still quite an achievement. That right? is yes. a pretty good achievement, I would say, yeah. So when the corporation were trying to attract businesses and uh, industry to Milton Keynes, they tried to be accommodating as accommodating as possible, providing a wide range of opportunities for a wide range of businesses. So they would provide smaller premises for smaller companies, um, off-the-peg solutions with expansion space, um, sites where companies could build their own premises so they could get in their own architects, or uh, the corporation offered use of their architects. Um, sites with expansion space, if you thought you, know, you were going to be successful and you might need that expansion space in the future. Um, they also offered surrender of leases if you were moving from a site in Milne Keynes to another site in Milne Keynes. So if you'd moved here and like found you were being successful and you needed somewhere bigger, you could move somewhere else without having to fulfill all like the contracts of your lease. So you manufactured car parts and you weren't in Tongwell and discovered that you were in the wrong part of Milne Keynes, you could then move to Tongwell. You could go and be with the car squad in Tongwell. <laughs> they also provided assistance with moving your employees. So if you were moving from somewhere else in the UK or even internationally as well, um, you they provided um, the employee relocation scheme where they would give you like a range of housing to choose from, uh, which you could then offer to your employees. So like big fancy houses in the countryside for the MDs um, to new housing within easy accessibility of like your business location for like the minions or whatever. The last thing I want to talk about is the corporation designed an entirely new building concept for industrial buildings, which they called SBI, which was System Building for Industry. And it was this off the peg system where you could have like various sizes of buildings and alter some of the specifications. So like heating, lighting, air conditioning to suit your requirements and what kind of industry you were in and what kind of work you needed to do. Um, and I was a bit confused about this, like, how, how is it off the peg if you can change stuff? And Sarah had a really good metaphor for me, or analogy. Do you want to tell us what that was? I can't remember what it was. Oh, no. I'm sure it was excellent, and I'm looking forward to you explaining it back to me to show that you understand the point. 
it was so if you're buying clothes in a shop and um, they're all the same clothes but they're different sizes you can get them in different sizes you can get them sort of example in different leg lengths um, you can get them in short sizes as well so it was like they're all the same thing but you can get that slightly different size or whatever to make sure that it's right for you well done Thank I'm you. actually really happy about that because I was going to ask you what off the peg meant because I've just been kind of nodding the entire time. <laughs> so thank you for explaining that. There you go. Sarah's analogy is great. Sarah is great, I think. For now. <laughs> okay. And so these um, buildings became known as advanced factory units or AFUs, and you will see them all across the industrial areas of Milton Keynes, most recognisably at Kiln Farm, where they were bright yellow um, but they're now very faded they're more of a pastel color yellow and i think that's a real shame um, i look at pictures of them after they were um, just built and they look amazing um, but whether this fits in with making buildings that contribute to an attractive city i don't know it depends on your feelings about the color yellow i like it i am looking at a yellow painted brick wall at the moment that's true it's a good um, color they were much brighter than that um, but I, I think, um, because Kiln Farm's sort of on Watling Street, I just think about, like, the people who lived in the area for so long before the new town came along and what they must have thought when these bright yellow boxes just kind of emerged out of, like, ex-farmland. It used to be Brick Kiln Farm. So they may have been on a journey between Stony Stratford and Fenny Stratford and all of a sudden there's a bright yellow building coming out of the landscape. I just think, like... That must have been such a shock and such a huge change for them. Like, not not a traumatic thing, but just such a big change. Um, so, yeah, I wonder what they, they thought about that. Would it be a bit like a... Is it a rape field? Hmm. Which is a beautiful yellow colour. So mm. is it kind of mirroring that, but in an industrial setting? That is a good point. Yeah, the rapeseed orifield are very yellow. And it's exa that exact yellow as well. So maybe that's what they were I mean, going you're for. You're a bit of a countryside into the city. Yeah. yeah. I like that idea. Well, now that we've talked about how successful and wonderful industry in Milton Keynes is and how global it was, I'm going to tell you how that none of that was true in, <laughs> in the archaeological <laughs> record at all. Um, so normally when we talk about industry and archaeology, we are specifically talking about industrial centres, which are areas of production contained in or next to settlement sites. Um, so the production that indicates industry is of a scale that it produces um, too much versus the population of the site it's associated with. So we label that as industry because you're if you're producing too much of something, then realistically you're selling it or you're trading it. Um, it's really difficult to talk about industry in pre-Roman settlements because we don't really have a full understanding of Iron Age Britain and anything before that going back into the Bronze Age and the Neolithic. Um, but what we do know is that the Iron Age all across Europe um, did not operate like ancient cultures that people normally study. So you go to do archaeology in university, you're going to study Greece, Rome, Egypt, Mesopotamia, all those places. We know that the Iron Age did not have a society like these classical cultures, uh, classical in quotation marks. Um, so prior to the invasion of the Romans into Britain, the archaeological record shows us that most settlements were self-sufficient. 
Um, products which were made in excess were used to trade with other Iron Age groups or tribes who had different resources due to geography. So, you know, if you if your tribe controlled land that had lots of trees in, you'd fell your trees that you needed, and then you'd fell a couple of extra, and you'd go and trade with the people who lived on the coast so you could get your fish. Well, actually, Iron Age Britons didn't really eat fish, but you get the idea. Yeah. You've got one area of land, someone else has got another, you're going to trade for what you don't have. Um... And there is a very clear extensive trade network throughout the entirety of Iron Age Europe that does link to Milton Keynes. We know this because we've got a gold stator from the 3rd century BCE, so very much the Iron Age, which was minted in France and was found in Bletchley. What is a stator? A stator is a gold coin. Okay. But it's, I, I don't know the, exactly how much it would be worth. I am terrible at currency and terrible at anything number-wise, but important coin. Yep. And, you know, it's gold, so it's going to be worth quite a bit. Um, but products don't seem to be produced here that then travel into that extensive network. But once the Romans occupy Britain and stay around for a couple of centuries, that's when we start seeing the beginning of quote-unquote industrial areas associated with settlement sites. And even then, the scale at which industry is being produced in Milton Keynes is not great. It's not global. It's not even national. <laughs> Um, the way I like to think about it is um, I like to go to the Milton Keynes handmade and vintage market that they have in the centre. Yeah. Um, and I love that market a lot. And a lot of the people who sell there are local. So if you follow them on their social media, you'll see that they go to the Milton Keynes market and then they go to the Buckingham market and then they might go up to Birmingham or they might go down to London. But you're not going to see them suddenly posting about how they're in France at a market or how they're in Scotland in the market. Yeah. Um, and the industry in the Roman and medieval periods in Milton Keynes is exactly that same concept. It's very, very localized and you're just trading with the surrounding area. So for examples of that, we're gonna, we're gonna be as unbiased as possible and do a Roman example and a medieval example. <laughs> I, have, I have gotten over my bias for this one at least. So um, for the Roman example, during the first century, uh, we get a number of settlements in Milton Keynes which are making pottery. So Caldecott, Wavendingate, Walton and Simpson are going to be our main pottery production areas. And there have been more found recently, but they haven't been written up and reported on yet. Mm -hmm. So the amount of pottery being produced at these sites specifically was greater than the amount of pottery needed for the settlements. So we indicate that that is an area of industry in the archaeological record. Most likely, the excess pottery being made at these sites was actually sent to the nearby fort of Magdavinium, so that it could that could be used as a focal trade center for everything in the surrounding area because we know it's on Watling Street we've got that trade route we've got our road to get there our road to get back out so Caldecott and Wavendon Gate were the largest pottery production sites with two kilns being discovered at each location and likely the presence of others which were not preserved so that kind of gives you a scale of just how actually not big this production site is two kilns that's that's it um <laughs> Maybe, maybe three or four, but only two surviving. What's a big number? Well, I mean, you can, if you look at like, I, I, I don't think I could do, give you a number, but you know, when you go to sites in Italy and Greece, for instance, and you look at their production areas of the size of the actual site itself, okay. you've got entire streets of production going on. So having two kilns in the corner of Wavendon Gate, like, okay, we're, uh, we're really, really minimal <laughs> trade here. But the kilns themselves are actually really cool. Um, so the kilns at Wavendon Gate not only indicate local trade and industry, but they in themselves are actually a product of wider trade and industry. So the kilns are that we first see in Wavendon Gate in the first century BCE, 
um, the original form of them is similar to what we call a Laten three type. And so Laten is a uh, term we use for Iron Age European culture. So you can have Laten brooches. And up until now, I didn't know this, but you can also have Laten pottery kilns. And the ones at Wavendon Gate are based on these continental Iron Age European kilns. So the technology has actually already travelled through a trade network to the UK and to Milton Keynes itself, which I thought was a, a very funky thing to yeah, find out. Cool. So these kilns reach England before the Roman invasion, and they were creating what we call Belgic-type ceramics. So again, it's, it's from the continent, it's not local type of pottery. Um, but before the Roman invasion, the output of these kilns was just enough for the associated settlement. It's not until after the Romans come in, the Romans being, you know, the biggest fans of capitalism in the ancient world. They, they love a good bit of industry. Um, we don't see the kilns being used for that before the Romans are here. Um, so it's actually thought that the impetus for the increase in production was likely due to the presence of the Roman army, which is basically what all archaeologists say because archaeologists are obsessed with military history and really need to get over it. Um, so <laughs> we it's know... It's just convenient, isn't it? You it know, is. You to think about, oh, the army came in, so they must have bought new... A hundred percent. It's convenient. Okay, we've got more bodies that clearly need to do something, so everyone local has to make, you know, extra pottery. What they don't realise is that it being in the Roman army... Being a legionary, yes, your your job is to fight and your job is to be an engineer to build roads. But the Romans specifically employed people into the Roman army that had a different skill set. They were like, you're a metal worker, we want you in the army. You know how to make pottery, we want you in the army. So the, the Roman army was producing its own pottery. So the idea that people can sit here and go, well, this settlement suddenly had to increase its industry because the Roman army is ridiculous because the Roman army was successful because it was fairly self-sufficient. So population increase, yes. Roman army, uh, I've got some questions, right? Um, because we know that the Roman army passed through Milton Keynes because we have Watling Street and we have Magiavinium, which is a town built on top of an auxiliary fort. But other than that, we have so little presence for the Roman military in Milton Keynes outside Machiavinian. It just does not exist. Mm. Um, so I kind of I kind of look at that and go, oh, I don't I don't think you could say that. Um, more likely, again, it's because of the increase in population. The Romans come in and putting the military aside, we have eight villas being built across Milton Keynes minimum. That is a large amount of population that is suddenly coming in because these villas aren't being built by Iron Age people who are going. Oh, I don't want to live in Wavendon Gate anymore. I'm going to build me a fancy farmhouse. It's Romans coming in and going, where's my fancy farmhouse? I need to put it somewhere. Yeah. Um, and they needed pottery. So, you know, it is a focus on archaeologists wanting to put the focus on military rather than daily life. But I do think it's just we're looking at population increase and suddenly these sites are going, oh, hold on, we can sell this stuff. Well, we already have the we already have the setup to do it. Let's just increase the um, the manufacturing, and we see this in the medieval period too. So um, last uh, podcast we talked about Wollstone, um, and I talked about the church which had medieval floor tiles in, and I'm now going to tell you about the medieval floor tiles because we focused on the uh, the coffin last time. Um, so the second industry is the medieval floor tile kiln at Little Brick Hill, um, and. This is specifically for anyone who is listening to this in light's late medieval history. I know you're out there. Um, so <laughs> the but kilns... there's no judgment from us if that's the case. There's no, no judgment at all. Um, so the kilns in Little Brick Hill were actually discovered when the tiles were discovered in 1915 in someone's garden. So that's a perfect chicken and egg argument. Um, 
So again, I love the fact that people are just trying to do their gardening and they can't do their gardening without finding <laughs> human remains, tiles, whatever you want. Just tripping so, over archaeology. Absolutely. Teams, so after these tiles were discovered, they kept digging and they found two kilns. Um, so sorry to whoever's flower bed that was, you're not getting a flower bed out of it no. anymore. Um, so when the tiles were discovered, they were classified um, as either little brick hill tiles, so tiles that were manufactured in those two kilns, or little brick hill type tiles, which were the same style but were manufactured elsewhere in Bedfordshire, Buckingham here in Buckinghamshire and Northamptonshire. And this is great because we now we have evidence of a production site making these tiles that were so popular that other people were then going, well, I want to make those tiles because your two little piddly kilns isn't going to be enough. So we're going to we're going to make some more trendsetters. Uh, absolutely. Trendsetters indeed. But again, just for this specific area, these aren't global. These definitely aren't nationwide. Even this is just this area. Um, so there were a number of glazed and unglazed tiles. What really distinguished them as important was the large proportion of tiles that were decorated with various designs. And these designs included fleur-de-lis, flowers, stars, geometric patterns, and many more. Uh, many of these designs are, are from different schools and workshops, which is great because it allows the archaeologists to actually date the tiles. So we know that the little brick hill tiles, while they're generally late medieval in date, they appear to be in use by the early part of the 16th century, and that's our date for when we first see them. Roof tiles from Brick Hill were purchased for the repair of Wing Church in 1527 and 1530. So we have evidence for paving being done at Wing as well, also in 1540, using these tiles. We also know the latest date that they were being produced, um, but if they were being purchased at this time, they were definitely being made long before, though there's no evidence for anything earlier than that. So where do we find these tiles? I'm going to do a bit of name dropping to tell you a bit about the industry of late medieval uh, Milton Keynes. So our little Brick Hill tiles, we find them in Bradwell Abbey. Yay! We find them in Blakesley in North Hants. And then in Bucks, we find them in Hanslope, Chichley, Hillsden, and at Lillingston. We find them in Little Woolston, which we already know about. Yep. We also find them in uh, Newton Longville, Stukeley, Studham, Tattenhoe, uh, Westbury, Whittleby, Whitchurch, and a number of other sites as well. So these, as you can see, these were used in a lot of churches. A lot of churches in this area had these little brick hill uh, specific tiles. They were the go-to, weren't they? They were, but only for... Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Northampton. <laughs> so I want to know like who had the even better tiles slightly south or slightly north that forced these to not be yeah. produced any further. Um, but this is, so when you talk about a specific industry, this is a, a fantastic one to mention because it's so specific. It is, it, it is one of those things, you know, when people travel the world because they want to try a specific food or you know, buy a specific type of thing that's only produced in one area. If you wanted a little brick hill tile to go in your church, you had to come here. Um, and you, you wonder, you know, maybe if the people producing it at the time had, you know, the, their version of Instagram, may, maybe it would have been more popular. Maybe people would have flocked here because yeah. they were like, yeah, I want really fancy tiles. But unfortunately, late medieval period, slightly too early for Instagram. They were influencers um, in their own way. Absolutely, but they only had a certain geographical area of influence. <laughs> um, but I, I do like the contrast with the fact that um, in the archaeological record there just is no no nationwide or global industry. And then hearing you talk about the, the later industry, it, it just is massively expansive. I kind of like that. I think it's really, really sweet. Like it was all just very local and 
everybody doing their own kind of local thing, local industry for local people. <laughs> yeah, that, that is definitely what we have in the archaeological record. So yeah, that's everything for today. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about Christmas! You can't mention Christmas this early. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have had Halloween, so we're allowed to now talk That's about true. Christmas. Okay, mm. I'll let you off. Thank we you. can talk about Christmas. So we'll see you next episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.